You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. Well, it's about time for another digital noise, I think. What do you think, Sir Golson? I think so. This is the you're the first human being I've talked to since the last time we recorded digital noise. <laughs> that can't be true. It is. My girl my girlfriend and I just walk past each other for the, <laughs> We've said all there is to say. You give each other meaningful looks and that's about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> It's a, it's a it's a sensible decision meant to avoid screaming at each other, which is what happens when you're locked in to the same room or house with someone for, you know, how long has it been? Seven years? About seven years. Yeah, seven years, give or take. I think that's about right. Well, thank God we have movies and TV shows to keep us from going insane. Right, John? For a while, we do. For, for, until that stops working. And then it's cannibalism. Till we exhaust <laughs> those and then everything is, all of our stuff is animated or uh, Zoom thrillers and Zoom comedies. Oh God, I forget. That's going to happen, isn't it? We're going to have like a year of Zoom shit to sort through. It's going to be weird because it's already affecting the schedule of other things. So like, I saw that, for instance, uh, like Winter Soldier, Falcon and Winter Soldier and, and WandaVision moved. And part of the reason that Falcon and Winter Soldier moved was because the Black Widow never came out. And all the Marvel stuff is so tied into each other that they need Black Widow to come out before Falcon and Winter Soldier. Right. Then everything gets thrown off. And it's like... Yeah, they're not going to put that out without a theater. Yeah. So everything that's being like, oh, it's all this stuff that's going to come out in 2021 makes <laughs> me wonder... Are they going to be putting anything into production in 2021, or are they just going to exhaust the surplus and then start putting things into production for 2022? Uh, I wonder we'll about that myself. I mean, I think we're definitely going to have a sparse year when everything mm-hmm. gets back to normal, assuming it ever does. Of Like, just not as much many movies come out, especially with, like, because we've been getting a lot of indie films, which take a lot longer in post-production a lot of the time because there's just not as many people working on them, yeah. largely. Uh, and so the, our year has been kept pretty busy with those type of films, with foreign language films, things like that. But these are movies that if once this happened, there was no way to go, okay, let's go ahead and make it anyway. You know, they shut down completely. I'm sure many to oh, never yeah. actually be able to happen. And big studio films, just everything just went immediately on hold. So we're just going to have a year with, I suspect, Mainly big studio films coming into release, but even then, not that many. Did you see the Jurassic World 3 news? No. What was the Jurassic World 3 news? They went back into production. They were like, super cool. Like, this was at the beginning of July. And they were like, great, well, we're going to start filming again. This is wonderful. And they were they were on the sets for like a week and then shut down again because two crew members had tested positive. You'd think... 
one of them would have seen a Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> just just because you can doesn't mean you should or whatever the, the yeah. quote is. Or like, you know, hey, we, we're doing this huge event thing, right? What could go wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Deep sigh. Are you watching any of Comic-Con's live events? Speaking of Zoom. Uh, no. <laughs> no. 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 Um... I'm not. I I followed some of the news. You know, I watched. Um, I I followed the New Mutants news, which was a weird thing because I thought they were going to announce like I thought they were going to do like an Apple drop and be like do their New Mutants panel and at the end to go and you can watch it tonight at 8 p.m. on you know right. Voodoo or whatever. But they didn't do that. They said we're definitely coming out in theaters in three weeks, and it's like, mm, are you? Like, yeah, that, are you are okay. I feel like Disney just didn't send them the memo because they forgot because it's the new mutants. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one was, uh, the other news that I followed was, um, Donnie Cates, Texas comic writer, Donnie Cates is doing yep. a big, huge event, uh, for image called crossover. That's supposed to have a whole bunch of pop culture stuff in the mix. And I'm, I kind of suspect that we'll see Marvel and DC characters show up in that big image event. If everything they say is true about the event. Interesting. Boy, Image sure sold out. Just it's supposed to be of the story of like a, 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 you know how comics, the big events are always, oh, the realities are colliding. And, yeah. you know, it's that, but it happens in our real world. And it happens with fictional realities and characters. And so it's about a kid like living in our time now, this earth. And yeah aliens and different pop culture characters and superheroes and all kinds of stuff start just showing up, dropping out of the sky, basically. So, yeah. I mean, crossovers, when did those ever go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, was there a good crossover in comics outside what, I of like, Batman versus yes. Predator, which by the way, you can't get anymore. I'm a bit of, of those kind of crossovers where it's like, like uh, they're mixing the characters up. Well, I mean, Marvel and DC, I really don't... Is there a good Marvel versus DC one? Because I can't think of one. I like uh, Dark Side Galactus, because I like the concept of Galactus coming to eat Apocalypse. I liked that one. Okay. Um, I liked the uh, Captain America Batman one that was in the Golden Age. I thought, uh -huh. I, thought I thought setting it in the Golden Age gave it a little bit of an edge. Um, and Super, Superman Hulk has good art. But yeah, Batman Predator is like the gold standard. Yeah, and I just read that yesterday. Apparently, it's totally out of print. Like, they don't even have digital copies now. Yeah, it's uh, now that Predator's over at Marvel, it, uh, the the copies that are out there are all that's out there. So if you want to read Batman vs. Predator, get it now, because it will not be back in print. And I have hard copies of that, of the original comics. I feel like now is the time to sell. <laughs> anyway, so let's talk about the movies we're here to talk about. Sorry, I know, we could, John and I haven't seen each other for months, and we're just gabbing like a two old nerdy ladies. Well, it's like, I'm not kidding. I mean, really, I, I talk about work from nine to yeah. five and then I talk to Wendy and that's it. And really, I haven't, I haven't really talked to anybody outside of that since our last recording, which is, you know, it is what it is. Hey, we're all in this together and this is the new normal. <laughs> it is. Well, I mean, I do enough of the weekly reviews that I at least get to hear other people's voices. You know, I I don't see people in person other than Courtney, though. That's it. Like, if someone's outside, the few times someone's been outside my door, like, there's been, like, still the guy who goes around trying to sell you home security or whatever still comes to the door. Uh. I'm like, the moment I look out there and see someone's there, I just freeze. I'm like, what do I do? 
do I shoot them? <laughs> is this like, <laughs> is this what happens now? We're not it's, there yet. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, let's move into our reviews. We're going to start off with two 4Ks of big theatrical Hollywood best picture award winning films that are fine, both much awaited by the 4K crowd, the 4Ks of them. First off, we're going to start off with Gladiator in 4K. So, full admission here I think Gladiator is a really stupid movie. Oh, Chris. <laughs> I, I'm all. F- I don't know why I'm still surprised after a couple of years of this of of our opinions aligning. Oh, so God. good. So I I loved this movie in 2000. I was a 25 year old man, and I thought this was freaking awesome. And I can't remember the last time I've rewatched a movie and been like, I can't believe I like this as much as I did. Um, I see, but I at least can say when I saw it originally, I was, people got mad at me because I remember Martin Thomas and I saw it and we were both like, oh, we really dislike this movie. And everyone was like, you're stupid. How can you not, you know, the kind of thing where people get really mad about it because they like it so much. Yeah. And now it's not even that I like it less. In fact, I, in fact, I probably like it a little more than I did then, if only because I just can't get emotional about these things anymore the way I did back when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm more like looking at it more analytically. Well, like, what was it people responded to so strongly? And it's a flag waving film of sorts, despite being not set in ancient Rome. You know what I mean? It's one of those, oh, it's 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 a, a stirring, sort of patriotic-ish type film, but we're talking about Rome, not America. Yeah. It's got a lot of... I was a little bit surprised by how much of the dialogue has worked its way into our, our cliche action dialogue. Yeah. Um, and for those who've never seen Gladiator... Um, it's about a a general who is essentially sold out by a conniving uh, contender for the throne, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Russell Crowe plays the general. And he's reduced to uh, slavery. His wife and children are killed. And he's sold off uh, as a slave to become then a gladiator on this quest for vengeance to eventually, uh, you know, kill the the despot who who killed his wife and child. I was surprised at how kind of cornball it was. Um, yeah, and, and really cornball. As I sat down to watch these two epics, you know, we're going to be talking about Braveheart here in a second. If you would have asked me just beforehand, just quizzed off the top of my head which one I liked more, I would have said Gladiator in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably, I saw it once theatrically. I probably saw it once when it came out on DVD. And uh, yeah, I, I, it feels like a young man's movie. It's kind of like angry and it's about justice and everything is like really simplistic to the point oh, of being yeah. corny and i mean almost like almost like it's pointed at little kids you know what i yeah. mean like it's so simplistic that it feels like everything they're just symbols more than they are people yeah. no one feels like a real person i, I can agree with that and i think the movie reinforces that by just calling people spaniard like like the main character is just referred to as Spaniard or Gladiator, and it's like, you know, and then and then the ruler is just Caesar, and it's like there is a an impersonal touch to it that I don't even know if that stuff is intentional, um, in regards to how how simple it is in that way. Um, I 
I'd like to point out once again, Ridley Scott being, having created certainly a few of, I think, the greatest films ever made <laughs> and shit tons of the most overrated ones. This being one of those. A film I think is genuinely kind of bad and people still hold it up as if it's like a truly great film and I will never, ever get that. I mean, this is the movie that made Russell Crowe, made him into a star. We saw how well that lasted. <laughs> just to say not really uh joaquin phoenix it was the first really big role for him i remember going right off the bat this guy is so gross like he's just something about him feels like he's coated in oil he's just bleh. and it took me years before i was able to take him seriously in a role now i think he's great but you name your character commodus and you're already saying a lot to your audience right there yeah, yeah. connie nielsen playing uh the 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 incestuous or wannabe incestuous sister of the villain who has a weird connection with Russell Crowe in here, Oliver Reed, who literally died making this film. Oh my God. The, feel sorry for him and his, his, his uh, relatives are having to go out on that. Derek Jack Jacoby, Jamon Hansu, Richard Harris, Tommy Flanagan, who I've just discovered right now is actually in every movie I've ever seen. I just didn't realize it at the oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd think you'd know from his big <clears throat> scarred face, but this is just not a good movie and it's shot well overall, but the CG that's used in it, which is extensive, does not hold up in 4k. It, in fact, looks, you're like, wow, that was green screen and that was green screen and that was CG. I just, I'm just not crazy about this movie. I didn't hate it this time, but it, cause it's, I was ready for it to be so sim simple and the 4k, I don't think does much to help some of the inherent visual problems with it. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very early two thousands digital looking movie. Um, yeah. even if it was shot on film, it has a kind of like stylistic choices where everything is like sort of, you know, there's the dream sequences. Everything is sort of like desaturated and, and, you know, I think that now, I I think I honestly thought it was like a really great historical epic. And now I think it's like a pretty good action movie. And I have to mm -hmm. sort of take it on different terms than I used to. So I may, I may still like it more than you do, but it completely reframed in this viewing and was really like, this is a big dumb guys movie. Like, this is not... This is not the like historical watershed that I, for some reason, thought it was when I was 25 years old. Right. Well, I mean, for one thing, historically, this is nonsense. Yeah. Like, there's just, if you go on its Wikipedia page and go, like, historical accuracy, that's a rabbit hole to fall down. Because, like, nothing, pretty much. This is just bullshit made up from the get-go. <laughs> um, the faintly resembling history. Uh, but I agree with you. The action sequences, they're, they're, when it does go into an action sequence, they're kind of cool. Crow is a great action guy. You know, I mean, he is playing the square-jawed, kick-ass hero, and he's good at doing it. But the character just becomes so larger than life and ridiculous. I can't believe anyone gave this best picture. But I was surprised to find, after when I went into the... I was, despite Mel Gibson's issues of late, to say the least, I'm certainly not going to be giving him any more of my money. I really did love Braveheart when it came out. Like the way you speak of Gladiator, I was for Braveheart. Like, damn, that was a fine movie. It deserved best picture. It deserved all the praise it got. So I was excited to watch it. And guess what happened, John? What happened? I found out it's just as dumb as Gladiator. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh -oh. I, 
And even like, I remember going, well, say what you will about it. And the fact that not, not only is it not historically accurate, it's like they were going out of their way to avoid being historically accurate. There's so like literally nothing in that film is accurate, like down to the tiniest detail. And, and Gibson was like a, a real asshole about it, even at the time, which I didn't realize, but he plays William, William Wallace, a uh, 13th century Scottish warrior who, when uh, fallaciously the British had been had taken over the Scottish Isles for a very long time before this, by the way, they hadn't. They had literally just invaded at the time. Uh, he leads his people towards independence that doesn't really work out. In fact, the real hero of the story is the in, in real life is the guy that they play off as kind of a wormy backstabbing guy, Robert the Bruce, played by Angus McFadden, uh, who, who apparently was kind of a badass in real life. But this is a this is the Patriot set in ancient Scotland. I mean, it's Mel Gibson is ridiculous. I was watching this going, well, at least he's a good actor. Is he, though? He's so <laughs> over the top. He looks like he's about to go into his lethal weapon, like goofy face at any given time. I, I know he's a little I, too old for the character. Like it, it, it goes it from is. him being a child to him being like in his youth. And I'm like, he he reads like a middle aged man. And yeah. I get that this from a story standpoint, he's supposed to be like, uh, it's like we skipped a lot of years. <laughs> he's, yeah. a little too, he's a little too old. He is. He does feel too old to be playing this part. I mean, there's some great side characters in here, though, and I kind of, it makes me want to watch more with them. But there's also so much stuff that's so goofy. There's a sequence where this guy who betrays them is having a nightmare, and then <laughs> Bruce Willis enters his room on a horse. Like, like busts through his door and a horse just at the high point of his nightmare about him, Mel Gibson, doing this and then kills him and then jumps out of the building through a window into a moat on the horse. And I'm going, this is still the dream, right? It is not still the dream. That's supposed to actually have really happened. And I was just laughing watching it going, this is so silly. So the reverse happened to me on, on Braveheart. I, uh -huh. I've seen Braveheart exactly one time. Back uh -huh. when it came out in theaters. And I thought it was pretty good, but I, I did think some of it was a little ham-fisted. And watching it this time, I, 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 it was like it's the weaknesses didn't play as loud to me. And I actually liked it a little bit more. And maybe that was coming off of sort of that how digital Gladiator is that I appreciated mm -hmm. sort of the analog world of Braveheart. I, yeah. There was something about the way it's shot and the way things are staged that felt incredibly grounded in a way that did that Gladiator didn't feel on that on this recent viewing. Um, I think Gladiator's 4K is showier in regards to picture, but I think that um, that's only because so much of Braveheart is like muddy and grassy, and it doesn't have as you know there aren't stylized uh wheat fields in in, in Braveheart. <laughs> no. Um but I think I actually I think my estimation of Braveheart actually improved and it was weird to watch a movie and feel like a particular sadness about uh Mel Gibson as a as a human being an individual. Sure. It was just like you know, you're watching this and it's like you, you poisoned your, your work. Like you, you've retroactively made everything sort of 
difficult. Like, because there are certain people I can separate and there are certain people that I can't and I can't with him. And, and when I watch his stuff, I'm just like, it's, it's part of what I think about when my mind starts to wander during scenes. And I'm like, that, that sucks. Like he crapped on his own, his own legacy. No, he um, totally did. And that yeah. could have been a big part of what affected me as much with not liking this as much or watching it. But I really was trying super hard to not think about it and just watch the movie. And I did. I just it just came across as it's not anywhere near as silly as Gladiator is, but it's still pretty damn silly. Yeah, um, I, I think Gibson is playing it like i said a, a a quick camera cut away from comical he's so over the top ridiculous with what i guess at the time read as intensity and now just seems comic booky uh, and the the storyline is is also i mean it's a little more nuanced than gladiator but not by much it, it's plays fast and loose with history everybody is just this kid's idea yeah. of a heroic figure or a villainous figure uh, and to, I don't to me, know. the difference there is in, is the passion behind the filmmaking. So I I felt like I think that what you're saying is like spot on. I think between the two of them, they're both full of like corny platitudes and very simplistic uh, relationships and things like that. But I think the difference just is in the uh, like uh, the screenwriter is someone who is a descendant of William Wallace. This is a project that Mel Gibson felt passionate about and wanted to, you know, at the time was still really proving himself as a director and I just, I feel like the the weight of the passion is felt stronger on screen in Braveheart than it is uh, Gladiator, which, you know, I don't know that Ridley Scott was that fascinated with ancient Rome. I don't know that anybody <laughs> was trying to tell. I, I don't know that anybody on Gladiator was trying to do anything more than create a, a marketable product. Sure. Um, and, and Braveheart spoke to something a little deeper, even if the movie itself is is just as much of a, you know, uh, uh, kind of inaccurate historical action film. Yeah, I will give Braveheart this. I agree with you. It definitely, you don't see as many of those artifacts of the CG era because they're not there. They didn't use them. A lot of this was very, very much of this was practical, but I'll hand Gladiator this. The action scenes are better in Gladiator. And here, Mel cuts away too soon. There's just a lot of very choppy editing. And it, I mean, Gladiator suffers from that too, but still knows how to show you a little bit more of what's happening. Braveheart's just like... It it glories in the scenes that are gory more, so it's like just cut from gory scene to gory scene to gory scene, and that doesn't really feel like you've shown us a war. It just seems like, hey, we paid for this. Let's show those things. Yeah. But I don't know. Both of these come out in three-disc uh, UHD sets that also include the Blu-ray. All the bonus features are just the ones that were on the previous Blu-ray editions that came with it. There's uh, digital copies on both of these. So if you are a determined fan of both of these movies, well, there you go. They're out on 4K. I personally wouldn't do anything to give Gibson a single cent of my money at this point. So I'm my personal recommendation is don't buy it. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that's me. Uh, sorry to the, the presenting company. I Nobody likes Gibson. The, what were you thinking putting this out right now anyway? I don't know. Let's move on to Arrow's release of America as seen by a Frenchman. Oh, when man. The, <laughs> when I read the description of this, I uh -huh. was like, better get some coffee. This one's going to be a bit of a struggle. But you know what? 
1960 French documentary film of literally this French photographer who went around America trying to hit up like various events, like town fairs, city fairs and stuff is actually kind of fascinating. It is fascinating. It's also a load of horseshit, but it's yeah. fascinating. There's so much dishonesty in this movie. Yeah. And I and I don't mean, oh, like we like there just it's not dishonest from like an American point of view in regards to uh we were putting up a front in the sixties and really there was an ugly seedy underbelly. I don't even mean that. I mean the film says and does things that I just assume that they that French people are just going to buy at face value. And I'm sitting here and going like, that's not true or that's not what that is or that's – why are you saying that? There was so much of that when I watched this of me going like, what the fuck? There's a, there's a part at the beginning where they talk about how they show a dirty baby sitting in the mud outside of a teepee and they go – Oh, uh, Americans really respect the uh, Native Americans, but they had to wipe them all out so that they could kiss more and kiss without fear. <laughs> and then it cuts to cowboys and cowgirls like making out in covered wagons. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Nobody, nobody has ever defended the slaughter of the American Indians with, well, we needed to make out in peace. <laughs> like we couldn't, we couldn't well, make out in peace. And there's so much of this movie as... like that where I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? I saw that as him intentionally trying to be snarky, but without being pointed. There's, like... oh man, I don't know. There's this movie, like any excuse it can have to, because there were weird, so just a little historical lesson for listeners. Um, nudity in films was much more acceptable and could be played if it was presented in an educational context. Yes. So this film has a lot of naked breasts because it's presented in an educational context. Like, well, it also came out in France. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, but it's, it's certain like things movie. are like, it's trying to present it in the lens of America. So it's going like, ah, this woman is, uh, she's posing for an ad for medical stretchers. And it's like, no, she's not. That's pretty. I'm pretty sure that's a nudie magazine because no. there's no brand name and the flag she's holding up just says ambulance on it. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not an ad for medical stretchers. Like, yeah, this is like if your, your creepy French uncle made a documentary about America in the 60s, you know, where you're like, there's points where you're like, okay, that's a real thing. Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, 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 there's some farmers doing some stuff. Mm -hmm. That's how they farmed back then. And there's like a rodeo. Sure. That's a rodeo. And that why yeah. are those people naked? Yeah. And the other thing is that they didn't, so they didn't really go all that many different places. Most of the movie is in Southern California or Texas. Sure. As a matter of fact, the, the, the ending when they're in New York City, I wouldn't be surprised to find out is, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that's stock footage because all they do is show buildings. Yeah. And I, it's fascinating. I would recommend people watch this movie. It's fascinating. It feels, it's like, it's a lie that's not a lie because your eyes are watching footage that supports what the stuff is saying, but the the stuff that they're saying, Chris, at one part they say that the hula hoop craze was caused by policemen who wanted to get kids to stop watching TVs so police would gather in town squares and hand hula hoops out to people. Yeah, that and I was is like, not accurate. <laughs> I've never heard that before in my life. I've never heard that that was the root of the hula hoop craze. In well, fact, well, I, I googled police yeah. hula hoops to see what came up and could not find anything that supported this idea that the hula hoop craze was started by the cops. No, this it was this it whole was movie is that way. It was Tim Robbins, you know, for kids. <laughs> yeah, for kids. 
<laughs> the no, whole I mean, movie I, is this way. I agree with you, but what was one of the, and it's funny at points like that. Like I kept laughing throughout it because of that stuff, which made it more entertaining, but there's also oh, yeah. just the, this is real footage from the sixties that's been fixed, cleaned up pretty darn mm-hmm. well of people doing stuff. You don't usually see footage of. Yeah. From that my favorite was the Mardi Gras stuff. I thought the yeah. Mardi Gras stuff was fascinating. And I went, I, cause my brain kept going, these are people's grandmas and grandpas. And like, they don't even, they may not, their descendants are probably alive, still living in New Orleans and may not even know that, you know, grandma and grandpa were in some French documentary <laughs> during Mardi Gras. And right. the people seem so alive and like, I really couldn't get enough of the Mardi Gras stuff. And it made me wish that the whole film was sort of like a, a view as to what Mardi Gras used to look like. Um, I liked that stuff the best. Uh, it's it, the stuff that I like the least is stuff like, and, and again, it's so amusing, but it's sexist, which is the stuff where they're like, and then summer ends and kids return to school uh, where boys will be taking their exams and going to classes and girls will be practicing the fine art of seduction and working on their legs. And here they are <laughs> playing sports and they play sports because tomboyish games will lead them on the road to love. And I was like, what, 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 are you, what is this? Like, why are you saying that? Or like baton twirling, they talk as being like a study in the fine art of seduction. Chris, right. have you ever been seduced by a majorette? As, no, but as I want to be now. <laughs> Nobody's ever like, twirled a baton and you've been like, Oh my God. You're like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What are you going to do with that? What oh, is sexual man. about that? I don't know. I, uh, this is almost like a, like a, it's almost like a not real thing. Like somebody put it together, like out of old footage now to be seditious. <laughs> I, I think the footage is, I think the footage is fascinating. And to anybody listening, if you're somebody who buys stuff to have as background, like at parties and things like that, this is, this is a must. Like, yeah, there's so much, what is that? What am I looking at? What's happening right now? And it's yeah. so interesting to watch as a documentary. It's not really a documentary. It's because it's, no. again, it's all built on sort of this, these French lies. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and I don't even know if it's, I don't even know if it's like a cultural thing. I feel like it's more deliberate than that. I feel like even if they knew what they were filming, they just made up some facts to just make things sound more interesting. Like, I think the hula hoop thing is exactly that. I think the well, hula hoop thing is just like, let's just make up a story about what we're seeing right now. And I would assume that this was a little, like, I feel like there's some reason for those decisions more than just fuck it. I mean, this if it wasn't done by just some guy. Is this guy, director oh, Francois Reichenbach, who made have, 40 films. Yeah, but have and, you ever seen a movie start with a note from another director going, no, no, I promise this is really good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah like that's we have fair. cocteau so the the film opens with a note from cocteau that's like hey uh uh i've seen a lot of movies and the world is getting more robotic and uh this one's really good you're gonna like it it's like i've never seen a movie with a note from another director saying like like an endorsement at the beginning yeah yeah please excuse america as seen by a frenchman for being late to to school today it was really <laughs> wrong about a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> <laughs> but there's a bonus feature on here called F for French, French, which is 23 minutes, which is an appreciation of the film mm. and of the director in general by Philip Kemp. Did you watch who it? Works in, I did not. Did I you? was, yeah, I was pretty disappointed because I, it was not an American. And I was really hoping that they would get somebody that would provide a greater amount of historical context about the coming over here and the filming of the, the thing and all that kind of stuff. And, and 
I wanted it. I wanted the film to be set in the context of an American critic. Dude, and if there was it's a, ever it's a, a British time cricket, it's a to British get... critic. Critic. I'm saying cricket over and over. <laughs> this it's needed John critic. Houseman is what it needed to mm. sit and just address all. You know, like an intellectual comedian like him to come in and just go, "What the fuck?" and yeah. go over this. Anyway, uh, let's not spend all day on America as seen by a Frenchman because we'd be the only people who did. And move on to another film which is much more widely known, but also French: Deerskin or Le Dame in French. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but it's written and directed by Quentin Dupieux, uh, I think, um, who is originally a French electronic musician and DJ, but moved into a being a film director, doing a lot of very strange movies. Uh, really, his big shot across the bow was the absurdist horror film Rubber, about a sentient and murderous rubber tire in 2009. But since then, he has done a number of uh, other movies that are also equally odd, like Wrong. I have not seen the short film Wrong Cops, uh, or the film Wrong Cops, I don't believe. But, you know, it's hard to keep track, of, which is kind of a, a spinoff, I guess. But reality, keep a dear, your eye out. And this one, Deerskin, which I genuinely feel is the best movie he has made yet. Maybe that's because it stars the great Jean Dujardin. Maybe it's because, hey, it's actually pretty short. It's 77 minutes. And maybe it's because it's not quite as nonsensibly absurd as the other films he's made so far. The story being Jean Dujardin, he is separated from his wife very freshly. He, when we meet him, he is driving out to the middle of nowhere to buy a deerskin jacket with like fringes hanging off and everything from this guy and paying apparently quite a lot of money for it. And the guy's side goes, Hey, you know what? Like, obviously kind of feeling bad. This guy's paying this much for this jacket that no one else would really want to wear. Take this video camera. I haven't even used it. You can you can use it for whatever you want. So uh, he ends up in this small mountain town and getting to know the small amount of people who live there and deciding that in his insanity that his coat is speaking to him and that it wants to be the only coat that exists. At the same time, he's kind of getting by by pretending he's a famous film director who is there scouting and taking some early shots for his next movie, which he manages to convince some people in the town of. Everything ends up getting slightly murderous towards the third act of the film, but ultimately this is definitely more of a comedy than it is a horror, despite it having a very almost on the nose amount of French nihilism. But what John, this is a movie that definitely is going to have wildly different reactions and different types of people. I'm desperately curious to know what you think. I was, uh, troubled by this in my stack cause I didn't really like rubber and I didn't like, um, Oh, the one with Jack Plotnick about the, uh, dog. Okay. I can't remember the name of that one. Um, where the guy's looking for the lost dog. Uh, and this bounced off me. It was not, it was an, it was, it did not, I didn't reject it as quickly as I did the others. The bounce was not as hard and as, uh, and springy. Um, but this pretty much bounced off me. It's got a comedic tone without actually ever being funny. So, uh, so like the events of the movie, just taken at face of value are, are sort of, horror movie events but everything is sort of tonally like a comedy which is weird because again there's nothing that's like it's it's odd but it's never like hilarious um it's it's weird um but not so weird 
because it doesn't really like it doesn't some of the other stuff feels weird and sort of provocative in a way this doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. even feel provocative it for him feels a little middle of the road which probably is the reason why i found it less um i don't want to say offensive because it wasn't like i was offended it's probably why it was more palatable to me hmm. um but yeah this this was just not my thing um i think i think it's you know the acting and it's good we also have adele i'm going to i'm going to butcher her name adele hanel hanel sure from portrait <laughs> of a portrait of a woman on fire um, uh uh-huh. so she made a big splash last year in that movie so it was good to see her in something else uh having only ever really seen her in that um but yeah i just i couldn't get into this and i i don't know if i don't know if maybe it was more if it were weirder, if it were funnier, if it were more violent, like I feel like there's nothing particular, any of the things that it's sort of doing, none of them mm-hmm. are really strong enough to make a big impression. Okay. I mean, I definitely had a stronger positive reaction than you did to this. I'm not as in love with, uh, with this director as a lot of people are, but I did find this is my favorite thing he's done so far. And I actually found it very laugh out loud funny, especially as oh, really? he keeps upgrading his deer skin like uh costume apparently if you get all the pieces then all your stats get a bump so mm-hmm. if you're wearing them all that's how that works as far as i know from playing rpg games online but uh yeah i found dujardin very funny in this um ultimately it comes to nothing what is it about probably nothing but <laughs> i found yeah. it very very fun to watch regardless but this DVD only release of it, which is odd because this actually was generally pretty well received and got some decent distribution when it came out. It's bare bones DVD with no bonus features except the trailer, which I thought was extremely odd. But maybe I've noticed a lot of stuff right now is coming out just on DVD that before the coronavirus would have gotten a proper Blu-ray release. Even some of the big HBO stuff this year that was like like the deuce the third chapter of the deuce that show the previous two got a really nice blu-ray package this got a bare bones dvd for the third season i was like Strange. what is that about and i was like i think it's because they're like people aren't aren't going into stores and shopping i think that's what it is i'm just guessing so. and let's move to another arrow film uh the mad fox this oh. was kind of a neat little discovery for me about a director I knew nothing about, Tomu Uchida. If you're one of those people who actually does follow Japanese cinema from the 60s closely, this film is also known as Love Thy Name Be Sorrow. It came out in 1962. Tomu Uchida is one of those directors that was always hard for students of Japanese film to get a handle on because although he has quite a number of films that are deeply respected and analyzed and thought to be great, he never really had a single style. He was very flexible and would try wildly different things in different movies, uh, feeling like as as many different directors as there were different movies that are worth seeing of his, which is quite a sizable filmography. But The Mad Fox in and of itself is an odd little experiment, to be sure. Certainly, the beginning of it feels like you're watching any number of low budget Japanese samurai films from the period. It's got a overly complicated plot. It's got characters who are sort of scheming against each other. 
it's not till it moves along and gets to the point that it starts integrating mythology into it as one of the main characters who's sort of the innocent, but now apparently brain damaged hero is seduced by a fox goddess and brought to come live with him in the woods that this film really takes off into a strange, like you're having a dream about seeing a very elaborate and expensive stage play. I found that from the second half of this film on that this movie was really fascinating, but it took a little bit to get there. I got into it uh, right away, and I really, yeah, I really liked it. Um, I think basically the 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 film opens with an omen in the sky, and we learn that there's a scroll that uh, can read these omens, and the, there's the the scroll is written in Chinese. And so there's only a certain amount of people that can read it because of, you know, they're in Japan and the mystic that's in charge of the scroll hasn't named an heir and he passes away. And then it's kind of a struggle for who gets the scroll and the, uh, it ends up being a pretty nasty situation and it leaves one of the people that was eligible to be an heir for the scroll, just completely racked with grief, uh, to the point that he's gone mad. Um, there is an actress in this, uh, Machiko Saga, who plays three roles in the movie. Um, and she's really good, at, like almost imperceptibly good at making these three characters feel completely different from one another. She plays um, the, the main character's uh, fiancé, and then she plays her twin sister, and then she plays... Uh, the fox's human form when she's attempting to look like his past love and find some way to make all three of them play, uh, play yeah, distinct. Yeah. Distinctly different. Yeah. Despite looking exactly the same in all three roles, because there's not, she doesn't get to put on prosthetics or do some big makeup change or anything like that. Like, I mean, essentially she's supposed to look like the same person in all three parts and, and still finds a way to create three, distinct characters uh from from the three it is very operatic it's very stagey very formal um but also like visually arresting yeah. and and always like always just interesting like like there's always something that's like oh, this is like i've never seen anything like this and i think i think yeah. that's really you know for people like you and me who have seen literally probably thousands of movies to still have something come along and be like, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this is always, uh, you know, always a, a, some a drop of water in the desert. Yeah. I, the closest I could come and I saw another critic refer to this as well. Say the closest thing you can even compare it to is what dreams may come because that movie sort of is set inside of paintings mm -hmm. at points. And this has that sort of like you're inside a work of, of art, like a, a, of two dimensional art feel to it, but not at all in the way that, that, that movie did it. Um, there's, this is just obviously experimental, but not obviously everything about it comes across as kind of organic to you wonder, is there a whole John period of Japanese film? That's just like this. And there's not, <laughs> this is it. I liked the, uh, this is just a little side note, not anything particularly deep. 
I really liked the transforming set when it collapsed yes. and became the hillside. I was like, so amazing. What? That's awesome. <laughs> I literally stopped it, went and got my wife and was like, you got to watch this. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, wow, that is amazing. If you saw that on stage in front of you, which is possible to do, but would have been very expensive and difficult to pull off, you would probably stand up and start cheering right there going, holy shit, how did they do that? Yeah. Really uh cool. Yeah, this is, you know, I mean, obviously this period of 60s Japanese cinema is just not going to be for everyone. End of story. Right. Like it's especially the samurai stagey stuff, uh, very theatrical. But if you are someone who has the faintest interest in this sort of thing, this is deeply rewarding and really fascinating. A whole a director I knew nothing about that now I've found several more films by him that apparently are ones that are must check out movies, according to some research I did after seeing this. And uh, just an idea of the way to do a movie that I, I've never seen anybody do since. Uh, there's an audio commentary by Jasper Sharp. Uh, and then that's about it for the extras, other than, of course, the regular insert booklet that's pretty good that Arrow provides all their releases with. But let's move on to our next movie, which is The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which I saw, mm. I believe, was of the stack I handed you, the first one you dove on. Yeah. What was it about this made you go, the the British sci-fi disaster film by Val Guest from 1961 that made you go, oh, you're definitely going in first? Honestly, it's because I have been thirsty for, uh, I've been wanting to watch a post-apocalyptic movie, and I've kind of all, I feel like I'd all but exhausted, like, the possibilities for good post-apocalyptic movies. Hmm. And so, and, and it has been an itch, like, it's been something that I've been wanting lately, uh, just, you know, you get in the mood for certain things and it's like, man, I just wish there was something, something else like Mad Max or something else like, you know, I don't know. And not that this is anything like Mad Max. This is um, a British film, but it is apocalyptic. It's, it is semi post-apocalyptic. You get an opening where the apocalypse has already happened and there's sort of the last um, stragglers that are, that are still keeping the lights on at this newspaper and then it flashes back to the events that uh, brought us to that point, which is that um, nuclear tests have rocked the Earth off its axis. And so everything is screwed. Um, yeah. And, you know, tidal waves and, uh, and, and droughts and the whole, the whole climate of the world is completely off kilter. Everything it's, is turned sepia. Yeah. It's a fascinating <laughs> screenplay. It characters are constantly talking it's like a mile a minute dialogue and it starts as sort of this like meet cute between this recently divorced guy who has his bag of tricks on how to pick up girls and he likes this girl in the newspaper office and he's trying to use all these old hack pickup tricks and they're not working on her but she does like him and it's for a most of its time a really like relationship driven, almost meet cute kind of movie with mm -hmm. this dread kind of building in the background as news about things being strange starts to trickle in. And by the time things go to hell in the movie, you've become so invested in their story that you, you understand why the film is structured the way that it is. I really, really liked this like a lot. Okay. Yeah. Have you I seen mean, it before? I, I had never even heard of it before, and I definitely, when I read about it coming out from Kino, who releases a lot of stuff like this, of period time genre stuff that is from England, especially, that 
most of us in America probably not very familiar with, despite Val Guest, of course, being a really well-known film director, uh, who's one of the longest lasting and working film directors, 50 years of work from the 30s to the 80s. Holy shit. I had not. And I admit that this kind of was not what I expected it to be. And I think I kind of fell out of it a bit because of all the, the fact, as you said, it's it's just nonstop dialogue and not a lot actually happens in this movie other than people talking at each other. And there were points I kind of zoned back in. I think I was just not in the mood for this when I was watching it. But there was one point in this movie that really pulled me back in. And I wanted to address that specifically. You know how there are some actors that voice are so like so distinct that if you heard it across a crowded room, you'd go, Oh, that's them. Yeah. Uh, Michael Caine has a cameo in this film as a, a uncredited as a police constable. I don't even think you see his face. You just hear his voice and you're like, yeah, that's Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> he had to been like in his early twenties at that point. And I just thought that was kind of amusing. That's a cool, that's really cool. I don't think I even picked up on that while I was watching it. Uh, but I'm glad you liked it. And a lot of people, this is a very well thought of movie. Certainly. I, I, it's a movie I really want to give another shot to at some point, certainly. But, uh, it was funny to think it was rent. It was rated X by the British form of film censors when it came out. You're like, why? But, um, of course now it's basically G. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess they thought people were going to think it was just too intense, too scary. People were thinking about these sort of things back then in the same way they are that this is really feels kind of a good they, right now movie to watch anyway. There's a uh, little bit of a modern, and I don't know if this is the reason why it might've gotten an X. Cause I don't really know what the difference is in the British censors versus the U S in regards to sexual content, mm -hmm. but they're pretty frank about what he wants and what she won't let him have. Right. Um, and, and there's and, an interesting amount of discussion about gender politics that you probably wouldn't have seen in an American film as much. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think this is quite good. And it comes with a few extra features, a new audio commentary by film historian Richard Harland Smith, audio commentary by uh, director, producer, co-writer Val Guest. And then there's a bunch of TV and radio spots for it. So that's just for that commentary by Val Guest alone. That's actually pretty awesome. I can only assume that at some point early in the run of DVDs, they put something together here for that, because I assume he's not still alive now, is my guess. Right? I mean, he can't be still alive now. He's still making he movies. <laughs> He's still making movies. Holy shit. Now, he died in 2006, apparently. But let's move on to our next film. The film that John even forgot. <laughs> the, the film that John <laughs> forgot. It feels like a, another British sci-fi film. But no, this one is Blood Tide. I had never heard of this one. I, to be fair, no one except for people who really love super obscure movies had. This movie was so poorly thought of at the time that people saw it and assumed it was a public domain film <laughs> and and pirated it and put out like bootleg DVDs of it because they were just like, well, there's no way anybody's actively putting doing anything with this piece of shit but what's funny is that it actually has some for the time pretty big name actors in it you know there's there's people in this movie that this sort of kind of folklore horror film that were big at the time james earl jones uh jose ferrer um, uh, Martin Cove, who was the bad guy from The Karate Kid, Marie Louise Weller from National Lampoon's Animal House, Deborah Shelton from Dallas, uh, Lila Kedrova, 
I mean, these are names that don't, except for Jose Ferrer and uh, James Earl Jones, don't mean much now. But back then, they were kind of a big deal, sort of. Yeah, everything's everything's solid. I have to think that this was inspired by sort of that late 70s Peter Benchley mania, like Jaws and The Deep. I have to think that this was sort of like came out of that, um, that, that particular time period where people were wanting to make movies like that um, had you know where it it's had. like yeah where it's like uh scuba diving and and there's evil at at lurking and it's um it's just it's funny it's even though the acting's solid it's shot really well there's a lot of like good photography in it but it's also kind of one of those movies where like nothing really happens yeah so while it's not crappy like it's not like it's not like a piece of garbage long stretches of just like no new information being doled out. Essentially there's like an old death cult. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, I'm sure people would say it's like Lovecraftian because it has to do with the sea and it's a small coastal village and that sort of thing. It definitely rings of Dagon. Yeah, very much so. And, um, Martin Cove and his, I think it's his girlfriend. They come to look for her. Is it her sister? If I remember I think, right. Yeah, I think it's her sister. Yeah. So they they come to find her and she's like on this island and she's sort of in a trance and they can't really figure out what's wrong with her. And then they spend a lot of time um, trying to find out um, yeah. where the audience kind of knows from go that, oh, there's a death cult and a sea serpent. And eventually they're going to try to sacrifice her to the sea serpent. And that's where it ends up. But there's not really a lot of meat between point A and point B, e- even though it's not bad there's just not really anything in between there other than james earl jones tearing open a watermelon with his bare hands Um, (laughs) yeah (laughs) i I don't know that's that's how i felt about it there's a certain amount of like for the period 1982 you're like okay this takes place on a greek island there's some people in here who famous for the more famous for their playboy pictorials than they are for any acting work they've done there's gonna be nudity I mean, that much is certain going in. James Earl Jones being one of the only character actors in here who seems to have any enthusiasm for it. And he's just like, knows this is bad and is just chewing up all the scenery that he can. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty looking with the monster is ridiculous. And I mean, like so cheaply made, although it's funny because like presumably he's killing people or it's killing people with its teeth and claws but at one point you see this little statue of it that has another very prominent part of its body that you're like maybe we're not seeing the thing it's killing people with because that seems like a that seems like that's a big part of its uh, anatomy there maybe there's something else going on there you know like dolphins dangerous Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is terrible man it's just boring and dumb but i can't say it wasn't worth watching entirely yeah, it's just, it's just, it is what it is. I, I yeah. it's, I don't know. It's not the worst thing I've seen. And it was, it just, I, it's one of those movies, like we have friends that go see like, you know, well, we used to, because uh, when movie theaters were a thing, sure. that would go see like anything that played like a Terror Tuesday or Terror Thursday or whatever at draft. This out. is the kind of thing that would play that, that would play it, better it, with an audience without. Yeah. Alcohol. And, and that certain people would like, then cling on to as like oh it was actually really good and it's like is it though is yeah it? i think 
you liked it because everyone was kind of drunk and you were having fun yeah laughing at yeah. it not because it was a good movie but weirdly this is by directed by richard jeffries who only directed one other film years later the probably also not good tv movie living hell in 2008 but he wrote uncredited he was one of the writers on tron legacy <laughs> oh weird and he also wrote a movie i genuinely like cold creek manor hmm so i don't know strange anyway uh let's talk about and that's arrow and it comes out with uh, like a 30 minute interview with the producer and co-writer nico masterakis uh there's the original trailer a brand new trailer for this release and an audio commentary with richard jeffries but the uh, next film by them is one that I actually found surprisingly entertaining, despite being a mess, is really interesting to watch. And that's Dream Demon. This is obviously a film, 1988, deeply, uh, I would, you know, I mean, this is what, this can't be that far removed from Nightmare on Elm Street. What was that, like 85, 86? 84, 84 for the first 84? one. 84? Okay, so this is obviously very influenced by yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, but British. So, you know, it's different. By yeah. uh, Directed by, by an American director, writer, and producer of film, Harley Coakless, with uh, some recognizable people, including Timothy Spall, uh, the always hideous Timothy Spall, but Gen Gemma Redgrave, uh, one of the famous Redgrave family, of course, who has a re best known probably for a recurring role on Doctor Who, so not one of the more successful Redgraves. She is uh, Diana Markham, and she is an upper-class school teacher in London. She's getting ready to marry her fiancé, who we meet, the two of them, in the opening scene, which has got to be one of the funniest, most awesome opening scenes to any horror movie I've ever seen in my whole life. Like, there were flat a couple out. moments of really funny gore in this. Dude, I stopped and watched it like five times. I was like, that's amazing. Like, she's like, they're getting married, and he's like, oh, dad, do you, I do? And uh, she's like, I, I, I don't. And he's like, what, you bitch, and slaps her. And she punches him, and his head flies off, and blood just splatters all over her. And I was like, this is amazing. I hope the whole movie is this way. Here's the good news. It is. So <laughs> she's having violent nightmares with Oliver always playing bad guys in there, uh, including with humiliation and, and abuse. Uh, she's this house she's living in. For some reason, the basement really freaks her out. Meanwhile, there's two skeezy reporters that are hanging around trying to get stories about her because her husband or to be husband apparently is kind of even despite being a military guy, for some reason is famous. I, I was he like second red generation Royal family or something. I was never entirely clear on that, but yeah, they're the, the type of people that the, the British press uh, like to follow around, I guess. He came from old money is what I think it was. He, he right. was an aristocratic family and the kid was a war hero. Uh, and it, it taps into like a very, uh, like a feels like a very oddly specific British sort of tabloid culture. Most of her dreams are about like, oh no, they're going to hound me and they're going to take pictures of me and they're going to ask me a lot of questions. Like all her anxieties are all rooted in, um, you know, sort of opening her door to the tabloid culture that her husband, I guess, experiences. So she's helped 
helping fighting off these really invasive journalists in outside of a dream, or at least we think so. It's unclear in this movie by uh, Kathleen Willoat. I have no idea if I'm saying that right, but if you watched a lot of movies in the 80s, you saw her in shit. She was a leading part in Murphy's Law. Uh, she was in private school, which I still remember quite fondly as part of my formative uh, tracking lines on the VHS tape. <laughs> edition <laughs> <laughs> roadhouse and many others but she's kind of a punk chick and she's like yeah i'll help you man those people are awful and she's american and the two of them start hanging out but then she starts getting these visions and hallucinations that seem to be tied to the basement and before long they're kind of is stuck in that the waking nightmare if you will like she just would no matter what she keeps waking up from a nightmare only to find out she's just in a different nightmare and it's unclear who's dreaming and who's not and what's real is she sucking people into her dream where they're getting trapped in there i mean it's a lot of nonsense in terms of trying to figure out what the hell's going on but there's some really clever conceits for what's obviously low budget but they make the most of it yeah it's got this sort of aesthetics of like the the Hellraiser and Nightmare on Elm Street where it's like long hallways that are sort of made out of pallets where they shine like blue light through the through the uh, slats and then mm -hmm. sort of like dry ice the whole thing. Um, everything <laughs> everything has that Nightmare on Elm Street Hellraiser look. Um, so it's definitely it's funny to watch a movie that you know is like like. Definitely, that was the commercial grab. It's like, we're going to be like those. We're going to make the money because we're going to be like those movies. Um, I, I did not love this, but I out of the two out of the two forgotten Arrow horror releases that we're doing this week, I think Dream Demon probably uh, deserves a bigger audience than uh, than Blood Tide. Um, I mean, and talk I was about surprised that it'd be fun to watch with a crowd. This one yeah. is like, it rarely seeps into just people sitting around talking, doing nothing. It's a like, there's pretty much always something happening. I, had you heard of this before? Never. Nope. No, neither had I. And that was a little surprising to me because it feels like, um, it felt like something that I would have heard of as somebody who's like, you know, a, not, I'm not a lifelong horror fan, but I, I go deep and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I just, I'd never heard of this. And, and while it wasn't my, it just, it's one of those movies and I don't want to like, it's hard to talk about without getting into like a little bit of spoiler territory. Yeah. You don't want to overpraise it because it's I, not like a great movie, but as someone, like you were saying, who's like, I thought I had seen everything that was like this, mm -hmm. like at this period, finding out there was one you missed that has some genuinely really neat, super neato stuff in it is kind of makes you want to praise it that much more. <laughs> yeah, I think th I think the other thing that probably kept me from liking this as much as I might have otherwise is that ultimately a lot of the stuff with her and her anxieties about the paparazzi don't really, and it, and it's really like the first hour of the movie that it consumes. And really it doesn't have any particular payoff. And, and that character is sort of sidelined for a character who up until, uh, up until, you know, somewhere in the halfway point becomes more of the primary character. I, I feel like the structure of it's a little wobbly, a little, a little funky in that yeah. regard. Um, I mean, there's and that's, barely a structure, John. Yeah. It devolves so quickly into just chaos, but it's pretty chaos. 
It was you know. it was fun. I I did like there were some there's some gross out stuff with Timothy Spall as sort of this like nightmarish drooling character who's eating like a plate of bloody spaghetti, and uh, yeah. and then there's like some other moments of laugh out loud gore where it's like the gore moments are so big and over the top, and that you can't help but bust out laughing. Um, yeah, I, and those are I always kept, fun. I kept going, no matter despite the fact that this was obviously low budget and was borrowing at least conceptually, you know, from Nightmare on Elm Street and some other films since who had borrowed from that as well. The guys actually got a is great at like, well, what how can we make something cool with what we've got? Yeah. You know, this is a guy I'm like back in my build a haunted house days, I wish I'd been on my team. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, yeah. Um, he actually was the second unit director on The Empire Strikes Back, for the record. That's a weird piece of trivia. And then he went on to direct Battle Truck. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I've never seen Battle Truck. What? You've never seen Battle I've never Truck? I've never seen Battle Truck. I think I've Dude. seen a trailer for it. I've never seen Battle Truck. I mean, it's better on Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> but, you know, I'll it's essential. It essential mystery science theater material. This is a surprising amount of bonus features on here. There's also two versions of the film, which the largest difference is one has a completely different nonsense ending than the other one does. They're both make no sense. Uh, there's a new director interview with the directors, new interviews with most of the actors. There's an archival piece done when the film was being made, which is behind the scene, candid footage and interviews. There's image galleries, original trailers, S certain scenes have audio commentaries with the director. Uh, there's an introduction with the director and there's, wow, I haven't seen this for a while. There's actually BD-ROM content on this one with the original screenplay, uh, selected continuity script notes, and all the storyboards that were done by uh, comic book artist and illustrator John Bolton. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah. So um, I do actually think that for horror movie fans, this is really worth a look. Now, moving up to modern day, although we'll move back to the 80s in a second, but, you know, be patient. We're talking about A Good Woman is Hard to Find. Now, I just reviewed this one on Screener Squad, but I liked it enough. Not totally in love with it, but there are aspects of it that I really liked. I'm like, I kind of want to have a copy of this because this is a movie. Not only do I want to revisit at some point, but Sarah Bolger, who plays the lead role in this, is definitely going on to bigger and better things. Yeah, I can uh, agree with that. Yeah, after this, really, she holds this movie together. But um, go ahead, John. Why don't you give us your, you know, t say a little bit about the, what the film is and about your perspective? Because, like I said, my opinion's already out there. Oh, there's a widowed, uh, there's a, a widowed mom, a single mom of two, um, who's, you know, just trying to support her kids and make her way in the world. And one fateful night, a drug dealer busts into her house while he's on the run and hides a bunch of, um, drugs and, and cash. And then, and then basically attempts to use her apartment as sort of a safe house where he returns back and gets more of the drugs he stole and puts the money there and that sort of thing. And it attracts the attention of an almost cartoonish, in regards to the tone of the rest of the film, uh, villain who, um, you know, seeks to to find this guy and get his drugs and his money back. Um, it's yeah, absurd villain. They gave him all these texts that you're like, why are those there? <laughs> it's a little too. And the movie is like, that's really the first tip that the that that the tone is going to be a little wonky. I think, I think it's just a performance thing. He's just a little too over the top, a little too like Stallone movie for what this movie needed, which feels like it needed something more grounded or believable. 
And yeah. I, I think ultimately uh, the movie also stretches a lot of logic. There's a lot of, well, why did she do that? Well, why is this happening? Well, why wouldn't she, and you know, why wouldn't yeah. he like, and there's a lot of coincidences as well where stuff just kind of like happens because the movie needs it to happen and they can't think of a better way. So it's just like, Oh, uh, you know, these two characters just happen to run into each other at the exact same time. It's like, okay, you know, and you just have to buy those. And I think that's really, that's really the trouble with this movie is that my suspension of disbelief was kind of broken at some point. And so as good as it is at moments, and it really is, I mean, there, you, you do wonder how she's going to get out of this, what's going to happen. And she does give a really good performance. I think ultimately the movie was a little too downbeat, a little too cruel. And again, uh, just, I don't know. It, it stretched my, uh, it stretched my need for internal logic a little too much. Yeah. I think we feel almost exactly the same way about this movie. Although I will say, I, I just want to emphasize how great of a performance Sarah Bolger gives in this. It's, it's so much better than the movie deserves. You know? Probably so. Maybe maybe that's why everyone seemed cartoonish. Was yeah, that she was I, so it, grounded. Yeah, she is. She's really grounded in this, and everyone else is weirdly over the top. Uh, well, her I mother as well, like the character that's that's you know, or it's, it's I can't remember if it's her mother or her husband's mother, if it's her mother-in-law. But basically, there's the the grandmother character who's yeah. also sort of over the top bitchy, like. Um, everything that she says is like cutting and a put down and like just immensely unlikable um, <laughs> for really no, <laughs> for no, no great reason. Just, she just is. So. Yeah. I, I do think it's worth, I think the cinematography on this is really cool for sure. It's beautiful to look at at points and that lead performance is so great that it makes it worth seeing very much. So I think Bolger's got much better things in front of her and this will be looked at as her graduating from teen movies to playing more adult roles. Uh, this won a bunch of awards at various horror and fantasy film fests, but it's not essential, but it's definitely an interesting point in this actress's career. Definitely like for sure. Uh, very much worth looking at. There's director's commentary, deleted scenes, a making up featurette, an alternate opening, outtakes, and behind-the-scenes footage, which is a lot to shove into a DVD-only release of this film, but they make it worth your while to seek it out. Well, let's go on to our next one, which is, as promised, going back to the 80s with what I've regularly called pretty much my least favorite of the big credited to John Hughes films, Pretty in Pink. And I wondered to myself... Am I going to view this with some more generosity? Perhaps a touch of the nostalgia now going back to this 1986 film and feel a little warmer about it. And the answer is no, I hate this film even more than I thought was possible to hate a movie. I really dislike this movie. I didn't like it when it came out and I can't stand it now. I'll say right now, anybody... I, I can't imagine... Why would you re-release this movie now? John Cryer is like the poster child for toxic male best friend, good guy syndrome. You know, he's horrible. And the movie looks at him as a hero. I mean, the original script of this, as some of the extra features point out, was that he was supposed to, if you actually get the novelization, he ends up with Molly Ringwald's character. Cause they're like, well, yeah, of course he does. He's the real good guy. But 
literally it just there was no chemistry there and they were like we got to think of something else because they're just they don't have romantic chemistry at all and you're like duh <laughs> i mean robert downey jr was originally supposed to play that role which i did not know well, until watching the bonus features here and that probably would have worked this it's john hughes not directed by the way which is a fact i always forget he wrote it did not direct it it's actually directed by howard Dooch, who also did for him the much better but essentially the same plot just gender reversed some kind of wonderful uh and the one thing i'll say about this that holds up and i'll even say i think that the soundtrack which is one of the best-selling soundtracks of the 80s is deeply overrated except for the psychedelic furs uh titular theme song uh, one thing i'll say here is annie potts is kind of cool as her older best friend who is both is punk and retro fifties at the same time. Yeah. I think that it's, I think it's important for Ducky to not get her. Cause I think, I think Ducky has to learn a lesson and I think Ducky's lesson is, is about entitlement. And I don't know. I, so I watched this probably with, I watched this not necessarily wanting to watch it. I'd seen it before, oh. and it and it wasn't one of my favorites. And part of it was because of John Cryer and Ducky. I don't I don't like Ducky. I just don't. Yeah, and he's awful. <laughs> I also think that for me, I think this is the first time that I sat down to watch it. It's kind of funny reframe. We talked earlier about reframing things, and Wendy, my girlfriend, asked me what's it about, and I said, oh. It's a, and I said, drama about a girl and she lives on the wrong side of the tracks and she likes this guy, but, you know, feels like she's too poor and blah, blah, blah. And I don't think I would have described it as a drama before that moment. And then when I did, it kind of reframed the movie for me. And I was like, oh yeah, this is kind of more of a drama. Like there's comedic moments, but I think growing up with it and growing up with it alongside Ferris Bueller and even some kind of wonderful, which is, has more moments of out and out comedy that I, in my head, I think I thought this was a comedy and it's really not like no. it's, it's, it is a drama. And I think reframing it that way helped me like it more. I think understanding Ducky learning a lesson by the end of the movie, something about this time that I watched it, I kind of went, he understands at the end that his entitlement is, is wrong, that he shouldn't feel entitled, that he's not owed a lay just because he's somebody's best friend. But I would argue that you brought that to the movie, not the filmmakers, because up until the point where they shot the final scene, he was going to end up with her. But he doesn't like the, the, and so what's on the screen is him going like, Hey, go to him. Like, like, I mean, that's what's in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I just, the movie doesn't, the movie betrays that though with everything else, the way they treat, treat him as the, the, the beleaguered hero, the actual good guy. And I think part of the problem, even with this version though, is that Andrew McCarthy is so bland. He's super milk toast. Uh, yeah, oh my he's, God. He's, it's really, really difficult to tell what, um, and apparently, so apparently on the audio commentary, because people were taking snippets of the audio commentary and they made it. It made minor news that mm -hmm. McCarthy was um, requested by Molly Ringwald because she had a crush on him. And so they <laughs> yeah. cast him based on the crush, and then he got a girlfriend. 
and it Aww. threw off the chemistry of everything on the set. Um, <laughs> That's but, so sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's super duper bland. The things that I've always liked about the movie, I kind of still liked. I like the stuff with her and Annie Potts working at the record store. I really, I really like the relationship between her and her father, uh, played by uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Man, and I he, used to, I used to always say that that was one of the whole standout things for me that I did like about this movie. But this time, I was like, they set up these like, oh, he's kind of a slacker. Oh, he's kind of, and the whole thing is resolved like with a snap of the fingers, and it was like that was never even in the movie. Well, there's some other weird <laughs> things like that that make me wonder like what the previous movie was because. The other odd one to me is that she has a friend. She has a best friend character uh-huh. and that best friend character disappears 30 minutes into the movie. You know She's, why? She, no. She, the actress died during filming. Oh, no way. Yeah. So the the girl that plays the best friend that she meets at the bar and then she later died. on, and then they have the scene in the gym where she gets in trouble and, and, uh, and then Molly Ringwald's character gets in trouble right after Andy gets in trouble right after. I didn't realize that. I actually yep. asked a question on Twitter and nobody responded, but I was like, oh, it was really strange to me that, like, she already had a best friend character in the movie who's, like, shuttled off to the side for this other best friend. I did yeah, not I, know that. I, I I can't remember where I found out found that out, but I fell down a, a, a rabbit hole of trying to explain some of the badness of this after I rewatched it. <laughs> and that was one of the things I discovered. Uh, it may have even been in the bonus features here. I don't know if you watched them or not, but there are some, there's not a lot. There's a new retrospective with the director talking about its legacy, um, talking about getting the job, working with John Hughes, casting. Um, then there's the cast and crew looking back, and this is an archival piece, uh, for 12 minutes on the original ending, which is where she ends up with Ducky. And there's some, not much, but a little bit of footage of that still around. So you don't uh, get to see the cut, but it's you see bits and pieces of it and of them explaining why it was changed, which, like I said, was largely because clearly like, Molly is kind of grossed out by John there's, Cryer. There's not a moment in the movie where Andy even hints that she'd be interested in him. Like, no. It, he's so friend zoned the whole movie that that ending just that ending would come out of nowhere. But as they pointed out, if you ever managed to find a copy of the novelization, like he wasn't notified that the ending was changed. So it was released with the original ending in it. You know, like that was the way it was set up to be. This is it's just an example of why, like I said, this film doesn't work because the ending for me, like it just doesn't feel earned. Like there's nothing to indicate Ducky would make this sudden change at all uh, that he suddenly pivots to at the end. And so it feels unearned. And if they had done the original film, you go, well, the ending's a bit of a misnomer, but no, the rest of the film, you're like, there's just a boring as hell romantic lead. Uh, every, every, I don't know. It's like a lot of things that seem charming in other John Hughes films, like everybody being kind of a, a caricature or even a stereotype are played for laughs and they're funny. Like I think of, you know, the equivalent of Ducky, but good is in 16 candles is a good example. Like that's that Mm -hmm. same character in 16 candles, but he's actually funny and, and sympathetic Ducky here feels like he's about one Rohibnol away from raping his best friend in this movie. He's, he's a shit, a shithead and you want him to go away. At least yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> but anyway, that's it's got a um the the way it's designed, the slip cover is kind of nice. It folds open with more images in there. That's kind of pretty looking, but the advertising for this makes it look like there's more going on in that than there actually is. There's not really a lot here. It's 
I mean, they've released this on Blu-ray before, I believe. It's got that one extra thing to it. Hey, man, if you're a big, pretty, and pink fan, I can't explain it, but here this is. So let's I, move. Well, Go ahead. I do want to say, out of the stuff that was new to 4K, this was the most. This had the biggest visual difference to me in regards to previous versions I'd seen. Well, like, it's not 4K though. Uh, didn't they just release a 4K version? I may have watched a 4K. Uh, the one I gave you was Blu-ray. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, but it, I, but it is a huge uh, upgrade from the previous edition of it, apparently. Okay. It's sourced from a 4K remaster, but uh, it is a Blu-ray Oh, that's where my confusion is. All right. Yeah. That's where my confusion is. So, yes, but I did think it looked good. Never mind. It, <laughs> I can't say that it looked, if it, yeah, I, I thought that I had watched a 4k because of that information. Um, yeah, no, it was the best looking version of this movie that I had ever seen. I mean, all I, I, this keeps happening more and more lately with stuff where you're like, oh, they put it out on Blu-ray from a, doing a 4k transfer. I'm like, why don't you just put it out on 4k? And I think the reason is because it's more expensive and doesn't sell as well. Yeah. And I think there's a digital 4k. Yeah. Which is Maybe causing so. my confusion as well. So. Well, moving on to the little bit of television, in fact, just the television segment, basically, of the show and the superhero segment of the show. We're going to talk about Legion of Superheroes. This is, much to my surprise, the first time that this has actually, in its entirety, been released in a home release. This was a two-season only television show adapted from the DC comic series of the same name, although I it probably should have been called Superman and the Legion of Superheroes. Even the Superman logo is incorporated into the show's logo here. It came out in 2006, uh, two pretty different from each other seasons, originally on uh, Kids WB line on the CW network. A lot of people were under the mistaken impression that this was a spinoff of Justice League Unlimited because there is an episode where Supergirl leaves to go join the, the Legion in the future, but it is not that same continuity at all. Uh, it is a completely different standalone thing. And in fact, it even really, despite incorporating a lot of storylines, a surprising amount of storylines, even some of the darker ones from the original Legion comics, it is as well very much standalone uh, invent inventing whole cloth, a whole bunch of characters who've never appeared before or since uh the two seasons being very different from each other the first season is superboy although he's never called that he's just superman just a very young clark kent who goes to the future with them he's just figuring literally just starting to figure out his powers uh, he, he doesn't get them he's very different from established canon versions in any aspect i've seen before of superman but he gets to know the this group of superheroes from the future who are also just starting to get to know each other. And that season is kind of about that. These characters, a bit of growth, getting to learn about each other, to trust each other. You know, all of them have their own various different problems. The second season is years set years later. And at first we don't even have Superman. We have a clone created Superman from the distant, distant future that the league has pulled in to fight this big baddie, that has once again invented for this that is causing all sorts of troubles. And the, the people who are trying to fight him then or the future have created this clone created Superman with glowing eyes. But eventually Superman that was the same Superman in the first season shows up only he's now like three years older or something, a little more confident that ties into Brainiac and a bunch of other stuff. There were just two seasons. There was supposed to be a third season, but there was issues when basically everything kids WB stopped being the thing that it was. And anyway, it's unimportant. Uh, the thing is, this has been kind of for 
people who collect this stuff on home editions kind of a holy grail for a while because it isn't bad at all. It's it's a not bad translation of the Legion of Superheroes and is at points quite entertaining. It's certainly not up to the all-time classics, classics out there of, of superhero animated stuff, but I can totally see why someone would want to own a copy of this. Yeah, it started, this was a little too, like, uh, pew, 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 like a little too frenetic, um, and and I never did, I never did get used to the designs. I think it looks, it's very much aimed at, like, the Ben 10 crowd, and, like, yes. the, the designs of the characters are, to me, overly comp- complicated for what they need to be, Um but it, but again, it looks like Ben Ten stuff. But also, like characters' faces and things like that are often oddly angled or proportioned. I just the designs of the show I found a little off-putting from the start. And again, it was the first episode is very much like like constant noise, constant shouting, constant laser blast, constant like yelling at team members. And I kind of went, eh, I don't know. And so I I put it aside. And then I went, I, I got to come back to this because I need to be able to talk about it. So I went and looked up the uh, the most popular episodes and jumped into the one that fans of the show had rated, which was about Candor and Brainiac and yeah, the, the good Brainiac's complicated relationship with the villain version of Brainiac. And I liked it. Um, it was closer to something like Justice League uh, in regards to the writing of it. You know, it was obvious that people loved this world and loved these characters a lot, even if they, uh, you know, had been given sort of a, a Ben 10 style update. Um, and I could see myself, I could see myself like watching the whole season. I think if I, if this would have come out, you know, I didn't really know Legion until the nineties when zero hour came out. Um, you know, we were talking before we recorded about crossovers and Zero Hour introduced me to a lot of the corners of the DCU that I didn't really know anything about. And one of those hmm. was Legionnaires and Legion of Superheroes. And um, I've always, I'm not a diehard fan. I like those 90s books a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, but I think if I would have seen this as a kid, I would have absolutely loved this. Because oh, it sure. has the same appeal that the old comics do. And, and part of the... I mean, part of the thing with Legion is is the commercial viability of Legion, and the reason it was so popular in the Silver Age is because you're getting a ton of superheroes for your money. So you can pay a quarter for Superman, or you can pay a quarter for, you know, 18 different teenage superheroes. And in that fact, like, I think, I still think kids now, even though the show is, you said 2006? Yeah. Good Lord, 14 years old. Um, I still, even though the show is 14 years old, meaning if you were 10, when you watched it, you're now in your mid twenties. Thank you. Time for moving on. Um, fucking time. Every time. <laughs> I still think that, um, I, I would, I would go so far as to say like, you know, a lot of stuff we, we put in the context of our listeners, you know, the, the one of us.net people and which there are very few that are children and, and fewer still that have children. Um, but I would say like, for me, my recommend on this would be, uh, if, if you know somebody who is interested in superheroes or interested in the DCU, that's a kid, I would, I would pick this up for them. Cause I think there's, I think it really plays with a lot of things, um, from that Legion corner that, that are really cool. 
it's not a terrible introduction to the Legion of Superheroes overall. If you're just somebody like, you know, I just never really knew much about them. This introduces pretty much most of the core characters of the that, that extremely long-running uh, set of characters. It's been around since I was a little kid. I remember in the 70s, or eight, maybe probably the 80s, to be realistic, picking up Legion of Superhero comics that are already in the higher numbers and, and just loving it. But they were odd because they were so distant from everything else in the DCU because they take place like a thousand years in the future or whatever. So it's like, okay... That's it's its own thing. And they built a mythology that worked. I would like to say hats off to Bouncing Boy, the huge overweight character that can bounce like a huge high tensile strength ball because he manages to uh, get in a marriage with the one other like it didn't happen in the show, although they start dating on the show. But in the comics, I remember at the time going, damn, dude. So the fat guy hooked up with the chick who becomes three chicks and, who all <laughs> love him. And I'm like, dude, score. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's a audio commentary track here, uh, which plays during the two-part series finale, Dark Victory, with directors, some of the voice actors, which is moderated by the Warner Archive podcast team of D.W. Ferranti and Matt Patterson. And then there's a 2007 promotional featurette. There's not much extra here, but hey, what the hell? I, I think this is well worth owning if you collect this stuff, and I kind of do. So for me, I was like, hooray, moving on to something new. Lego DC has put out some really shitty stuff and some really fun stuff. And Lego DC Shazam! Magic and Monsters kind of falls in the middle for me. Shazam! And I'll never stop being annoyed that he's not called Captain Marvel. Sorry, just uh, legal stuff. His name's Captain Marvel. Is played kind of... Is cast well with Sean Astin, who's great at playing a gee, guys type of roles he's quite good at it and uh although the younger version of him billy batson is played by zach callison who actually is about that right age he's known from the steven universe movies but this is a dc lego way of introducing shazam into there i don't even know if they are supposed to have continuity or not i really don't i don't i don't think i care enough to, yeah. to know one it doesn't matter but some of these can be kind of cute like the flash one i thought was actually pretty damn good um but Shazam is introduced and everyone's like the Justice League are like who is this guy and there's a new villain mastermind who can Mr. Mind who can control people's minds and uh Shazam is like scared of trusting anyone because they don't he doesn't want them to find out that he's actually just a little boy inside and not like this big strong man but he has to learn to trust the Justice League and they have to learn to trust him that's the emotional core ultimately it's all of them teaming up against first the Mr. Mind character, and then eventually Black Adam. And, I mean, it's mildly diverting. Yeah, I I like Shazam and his corner of the DCU more than I like um, Legion. And okay. I liked the Legion cartoon more than I liked Lego Shazam. It's kind of uh, numbing. It sort of just, like, stays at... Uh, like a certain level of yeah. pitch and tone. It's like hearing the same frequency for too long. You just, you kind of just tune it out. Um, True. Yeah. It's like a it, screensaver of animated movies. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's not, it's not offensive, but it also doesn't have things that you associate with good narratives. There's no like ups or downs or like breaks or anything. It It's sort of just, there's a little there's some cute stuff with like the Justice League team like becoming kids 
And I think it, it, it's also kind of episodic. Like it feels like something kind of happens for about 20 to 30 minutes and then something else kind of happens for about 20 yeah. minutes. And I think really my, my point of checking out was when the film became about Black Adam. And I was kind of like, all right, like, I so, guess yeah, it's not even... just like, it's like the greatest hits. Like they're just yeah. going to, they're going to touch on everything and everybody, but without a lot of, um, without really a great story to tell. And and I don't want, it's not, I sound stupid. Cause it's like, I realize you don't watch, you're not, I'm not turning on a Lego movie for like a great story, but I have had fun with them in the past. And this one sure. to me was tiring. Yeah. Um, just I, with adult eyes, I found it tiring. Which is a shame because I think the live action Shazam movie ranks among the top, if not the top of the DC uh, DC movie releases lately. And for me, it's my favorite of the ones they put out. I enjoyed it thoroughly and I was kind of mildly excited about this because I've seen some of the these uh, even direct uh, home release DC things be not bad. And yeah, this is just kind of eh, it's, it's kind of there. I think they're too long as movies. I honestly yeah. like this one made me wonder, would I like this more if this was four 20 minute episodes instead of like a feature length movie? Maybe. I don't I know. think maybe yeah. so. I think it's easier to digest. It's, it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough sit for a movie because again, you, you're not, you're, you're, it's sort of just yelling just the whole time. It's not, there's nothing like, there's no modulation to anything. No, no, there's not. And this is definitely more so than even the other Lego ones I've seen directed towards younger children, I think. And that's fine. It's just for someone who thinks that you can do a children's movie that appeals to everyone quite well has been proven any number of times. This is not it. Yeah. <clears throat> there's... It wasn't as good as the last Batman one that we watched, which no, I don't remember what not. the name of that one was. I don't but, either. Uh, but, but it wasn't no. as good as that one. But it's still not terrible. Whatever, no. you know, if you, if you have kids, this is a great buy for them. And it comes with a little, uh, little Shazam figure, at least if you get that version of it, I think it's probably at Walmart or some shit, but like, uh, there's a, a um, little Lego Shazam I have oh, on my cool. shelf now next to my Lego, uh, Green Lantern, <laughs> but the extra features are just episodes from other products from WB of cartoons, a Teen Titans Go episode and two Unikitty episodes, which I didn't know was a thing, but apparently is a thing. And if you want to know about it, you can either seek it out on its own or go watch it here. Let's move on to our last one, which you didn't even have to watch, but I know you've seen. So I was like, uh -oh. okay. Uh, and that is the original Wonder Woman Linda Carter TV series now in a complete collection on <laughs> Blu-ray. Oh, <laughs> what did that sound mean? Uh, I, I've, I, so I've seen the first episode relatively recently, even though you didn't oh. ask me to watch it. I've actually, I saw the first episode, uh, you know, probably eight months ago, nine months ago. What did you see it on out of curiosity? Um, I actually, I'm trying to remember what I did. I think I bought the first episode on Amazon or there was some kind of a promotion where you could get the first episode for free. Hmm. Somehow I've ended up with only the first episode on my on my Amazon purchased content. So and that we, noise that you made was a noise of annoyance that I did no. not bring this to you to watch. It was it was uh, it was oh cool. I I have actually seen this recently enough to be able to talk about it. Um right. you know, cuz otherwise I'd be going off of hazy memories of the 70s. Um but no, I I saw the pilot relatively recently and it's like oh okay, cool. 
When I was a kid, I was watching the shit out of this Wonder Woman series. It was kind of an oddity. Uh, it took place. It came out for three seasons, 1975 to 79. Each season was drastically trying new things. So they're pretty different from each other. Linda Carter, though, plays Wonder Woman slash Diana Prince in all three. Lyle Wagoner, who is probably better known for being the, one of the uh, one of the main actors on the Carol Burnett show for that the run of that uh plays steve trevor both senior in the first season which takes place during world war ii and junior in the second two seasons which takes place in the 70s it's you know what one of the most interesting things i did not realize was that deborah winger played wonder girl which is interesting no idea that that was the case which is the you know obviously the the teen version of wonder woman like sidekick character that has become much more uh, pronounced in in DC adaptations of late she's like in the new Titans show but yeah she's uh she's in quite a bit of the first season apparently but these are i mean they're goofy but what's sets them apart from what had happened before is pretty much every DC thing before this to live action on TV had been flat out played for laughs and this was not they were actually kind of playing it seriously and those results will vary as it goes on through these episodes some you know the third season gets pretty damn goofy but they're all goofy in their way there's a lot of played for laugh cameo characters in here come in to play various roles uh some already from actually from the wonder woman and dc mythology some not but it's a relatively well fixed up as good as any exists yet version of these uh, all in one very compact set with a slip cover. Linda Carter was a find, and the three bonus pe- features, featurettes on here, all of which are archival, unfortunately, make very clear that they realized what they had. The, one of the disappointments for me was that there there was a movie pilot made with the intention of making this into a TV show a couple years before this that was made with Kathy Lee Crosby in the lead role. That is nowhere to be found here, unfortunately. I've never seen it. Wouldn't know where you could see it. But I'm like, well, Warner Brothers owned that too. Why didn't they fucking shove that? They talk about it in the bonus features. Why didn't they shove it on here? Don't have the answer for that. But the what did happen is that they tried it a second time after that did not work with Linda Carter. Immediately went, wow, we've got something here. And audiences agreed. I mean, Linda Carter continues to be a known name based, I would argue, solely on her success and her iconicness in playing the live action version of this role. It has an interesting flavor because it's not like Batman 60s campy. No. And I don't know. It is light entertainment, though, and it it sort of doesn't take itself seriously. So they found a nice balance of being able to maintain a maintain some kind of uh, uh, thing where it never tips over into like dopey. And yeah. it feels like it easily could. And I don't know. They just keep it. They keep it light and they keep it fun. Um, there's usually some, you know, she solves some problem on a week to week basis. The pilot, I was surprised when I, when I watched it, that, um, I think I was a little surprised by some of the comic book tropes of Wonder Woman. Cause I think, I think, I think of Wonder Woman in the same era of shows like the Incredible Hulk, which it, when you compare the two now. Wonder Woman was way more comfortable with its comic bookiness than the Hulk was. Mm-hmm. They they have no problem like 
showing uh, Themyscira and like, you know, a whole island full of Amazon women and a lot of the things that you might not expect uh, them to just tr take his face value of just this is the truth of this character and the truth of this character's world. And so we're just going to show these things without a lot of explanation, without a lot of hand wringing. We're just going to put them on screen. And that's kind of a stark contrast to like Hulk, which was very much like he never really, you know, it was rare that uh, his he was fighting like sci-fi problems. It was mostly just like, oh, you know, I feel like it was a lot of... Uh, I don't know. Small town. There's an evil yeah, mining or, company that's yeah. costing people their jobs. He goes that, in. Yeah, it, very... there, there was a lot of like 70s social commentary. Yeah. And even his origin, you know, having a lot of the, the sort of comic book iconography removed from his origin and then and not bringing any of the cast of characters over and not bring any of the supporting characters, not bring any of the villains. And Wonder Woman, you know, it, it embraces that stuff a lot better than Incredible Hulk does. Um, Interestingly, this actually arguably didn't get a third season because CBS moved the Incredible Hulk into its time slot and then they couldn't find a place to put it. Interesting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I I mean, is this going to appeal to kids today? No, not unless you're really into, like, you know, la laughing at a certain degree, but not overwhelmingly so of camp. But I certainly think that when you look at this historically, if you can watch shows from this period and this is a very well-made show overall for this period, for what it was, it's certainly more serious, taken much more seriously than this type of show ever had been before it. There's a lot of interesting trivia to be found around the corners, which surprised me that this thing wasn't loaded with commentary tracks and with like more newer bonus features. There really isn't. There's just pretty much there's a commentary on the pilot episode by Linda Carter and Douglas S. Kramer. And there's a commentary on the episode. My teenage idol is missing by Linda Carter. Uh, and then there's the three bonus features, one of which called the ultimate feminist art icon, which this promotes a little more than is actually accurate. I would argue that certainly the character did do some things for TV uh, uh, that were arguing feminist viewpoints that were very uncommon for this period of time to be on television, especially on kids television. But also in equal measure would have characters like Steve Trevor would say really sexist stuff and then not get called out for it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a mixed bag, but like I said, I'm a collector of the superhero stuff, especially nostalgic era superhero stuff. So I was very happy to get this. Uh, certainly it could have been a better release visually. It's it's as good as it's ever looked, but it's nowhere near perfect. And the audio is also just a Dolby digital lossy 2.0 mono track that they've done not much to fix up. So kind of like sad, especially I was like, hey, man, give me a good version of that theme song. Love the theme song. <laughs> Anyway, that is it for Digital Noise. We only have one thing left to do, John Golson. What is that? Pick of the Weeks? The Pick of the Week. This is a really tough one. Can it, can I do a tie for the first time ever? Okay, and I will decide the tie winner. Uh-oh. Okay. I, you know, Day the Earth Caught Fire is my general, broad appeal Pick of the Week. But if you got a taste for it and the Mad Fox sounded interesting, the Mad Fox is my is my super double secret pick of the week. <laughs> well, I am going to go with the Mad Fox out of those two then. Ah. I actually found that really fascinating. And like the, it's, it's interesting about this little hidden piece of cinema history you didn't know about that's actually really fucking super neato. Yeah. Yeah, it yep. is. 
Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, we All those titles are available, you guys, for clicking on and going to the Amazon page on our actual homepage. If you go to oneofus.net, go to the digital noise page of that. You'll see pictures of all of them along with time codes of when we talked around each one. If you click on one of those and you buy a title from that, that kicks some money back to the site. We really appreciate it when you do that. And there were several on this week's show, I'd say, were well worth checking out. Oh, definitely. Or well worth owning a copy of as well. So uh, until then, John, do you have anything you want to promote that you're doing? right now online that people can see or you want them to see or purchase uh keep your eye on the comic book halloween man i'm working on pages for a 20th anniversary special um and nice. that will be the more announcements that direction will be coming soon but you can learn more about halloween man at your local lending library <laughs> nice yeah those guys are, are here in town i encounter them relatively often or i did when we used to encounter people mm-hmm Back in the day. I remember people. <laughs>